The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello, and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Up in the northern part of Abiyala, in the country currently referred to as Canada, Bill C-5 is making its way through Parliament. Bill C-5, an act to amend the Criminal Code and the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, has made it through its third reading in the Commons and is currently in the Senate, where it's being considered by the Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs. The committee has held a number of hearings on the measure. We're going to hear some testimony from two of the most recent hearings on October 19th and 20th. From October 19th, first up is Bita Senajani, Dialogue's Program Coordinator with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. And we will speak mainly to the suggested amendments in Bill C-5 related to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. This is an issue that we take very seriously, and the time for change is long overdue. Bill C-5 is coming in a context where decriminalization is a national reality. Next year, BC will be implementing decrim and municipalities and provinces across the country are in the process of decriminalizing. There's broad consensus that criminalization of people is deeply problematic. It is not clear to us that Bill C-5 will have an impact on reducing crim- criminal charges related to possession. Madame Sénégal, just an instant, I think we don't have a traduction. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. Okay, excuse me. Okay, thank you. So, Bill C-5, it does not go far enough. We would like to refer you to our submitted brief and our national civil society decriminalization platform called Decrim Done Right for further details on recommendations related to the CDSA and reform to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act in general. We recommend full decriminalization of simple possession and necessity trafficking. This is the best way to ensure legislative reform has a better chance of supporting civil rights in this country. Now, in particular, we would like to draw the committee's attention to Section 10.22 in Bill C-5 related to warnings and referrals for possession. While Section 10.21 states that peace officers shall consider alternatives to laying charges by considering whether to take no further action to warn an individual or to make a referral, Section 10.22 maintains that any charges are valid despite the failure of a peace officer to consider these aforementioned options. We would like to see Section 10.22 struck from the bill. Not doing so would severely undermine the purpose of the bill, which is to address disparities in sentencing among Black, Indigenous, and other Canadians. Striking Section 10.22 would help ensure reduction in criminal charges for possession. Secondly, we'd like to refer the committee to Section 10.6, which is the sequestration system for setting aside any records of convictions related to possession, which would come into effect after two years. Of course, stigma being rampant, we would like to see Section 10.6 amended to state that the sequestration system must be implemented immediately rather than including a lag period of two years, and that within one year of the the system being implemented, that as soon as possible, we see those records fully expunged. That was Bita Senajani, Dialogue's Program Coordinator with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Now here's Nicole Longo, Systems Change Coordinator with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. I'm going to speak uh, to the declaration of principles in the bill, as well as uh, evidence-based diversion measures more broadly. Uh, So we want to kind of critically interrogate the underlying premises of these principles and how they are contravened by the actual contents of the bill. 
First, it is crucial to recognize that most substance use is not problematic. So we recommend eliminating the word problematic from principle A, as it relays nothing about one's relationship to drug use. It derives meaning in this context solely from the fact that the drugs in question are illegal. Uh, related, those who develop chaotic or compulsive relationships with illegal drugs usually do so alongside material deprivation and exposure to trauma, including the trauma linked to poverty, homelessness, negative encounters with police, and discrimination. We thus recommend amending principles B and E to highlight that all interventions for both possession and necessity trafficking must protect the human rights, dignity, and health of people who use drugs by being entirely voluntary and addressing structural vulnerabilities. We also recommend amending uh, Principle E to commit to investing public resources in societal reintegration versus a more narrow focus on individual rehabilitation. Now, pertaining to warnings and referrals, uh, the federal government regularly states that it seeks to mitigate structural stigma related to drug use. However, rather than reduce stigma, the assumption that all people who use drugs require interventions can paradoxically exacerbate it. For example, research demonstrates that first responders and medical service providers perceive people diagnosed with addiction as dangerous. Interviews conducted with employers reveal a low willingness to hire people who are diagnosed with addiction. And this interpersonal stigma can also fuel internalized stigma. The majority of treatment for addiction is ideologically rooted in programs designed nearly a century ago, and they are widely criticized for being unsupported by contemporary evidence. Research on the effects of these programs suggests that enrollments contributes to viewing oneself as un unstable, incompetent, and untrustworthy, and people are at a significantly increased risk of non-fatal and fatal overdose immediately following discharge from these programs. So acknowledging the disproportionate impacts of prohibition on Black and Indigenous communities, as well as Canada's stated commitment to reconciliation, and in the spirit of enhancing public health, human rights, and bodily autonomy, we strongly discourage the introduction of any diversion initiatives that are not entirely consensual, which is not actually possible under a framework of prohibition. That was Nicole Wongo, Systems Change Coordinator with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, testifying before the Canadian Senate's Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs on Bill C-5, an act to amend the Criminal Code and the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Broadly speaking, Canada's Bill C-5, among other things, repeals certain mandatory minimum penalties, allows for greater use of conditional sentences, and establishes a diversion measure for simple drug possession offenses. Let's hear more from that October 19th hearing. Here's Safia Ahmed, a student at law with the BC Civil Liberties Association. My name is Safia Ahmed, and I'm joined by my colleague, Nikki Baines. We're from the BC Civil Liberties Association. I'm joining from the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Acknowledging the territory upon which we live and work reminds us all of our obligations towards Indigenous people, and this informs our work today on Bill C-5. BCCLA supports many of the changes the bill seeks to make, but in our view, it does not go far enough. Currently, the bill is unlikely to have the desired impact of addressing systemic discrimination in the criminal legal system. In our written brief, we outlined for the committee four areas of concern with Bill C-5. First, we recommend that all mandatory minimum sentences be repealed. 
There is considerable research and case law to show that mandatory minimums contribute to the mass incarceration of Indigenous and Black people and cause disproportionate harm to people with mental illnesses. We also have decades of scholarly research establishing that mandatory minimums do not provide the deterrent effect for which they're so often justified. Mandatory minimums thus cause immense harm without any apparent benefit, which is why we strongly urge this committee to repeal all remaining mandatory minimums. If Parliament is not willing to take this step at this time, at the very least, we urge the committee to add a provision allowing judges to use their discretion to depart from a mandatory minimum. Such a provision should not be restricted to exceptional circumstances, as this would unfairly place the burden on marginalized individuals to prove the disproportionately harmful effect uh, of mandatory minimums. We emphasize that this provision would be a stopgap measure until the remaining mandatory minimums are fully repealed. That was Sophia Ahmed, student at law with the BC Civil Liberties Association. Now here's Nikki Baines, policy staff counsel with the BC Civil Liberties Association. I'm speaking to you from Amiskwachi Waskaigan, Treaty 6 territory. Our recommendation is to remove all unnecessary restrictions on the availability of CSOs. Bill C-5 removes some while leaving in place three restrictions contained in paragraph 742.1 sub B, C even as amended, and D. Consistent with the original form of the CSO provision introduced in 1996 and the need to repeal all mandatory minimums, Section 742.1 need only be restricted to sentences of two years less a day and the requirement that serving the sentence in the community would not endanger community safety and be consistent with sentencing principles, as is already set out in paragraph A. As outlined in our written materials, expanding the availability of CSOs creates space for Indigenous legal orders to be respected and implemented. Indigenous nations are actively working to reclaim and reinvigorate their systems of law and governance, systems that have been targeted by the state, including Parliament itself, for hundreds of years. Community-based sanctions, like CSOs, provide an opportunity for Indigenous peoples to hold citizens accountable in ways that are meaningful to them. Expanding the availability of CSOs is a small but important step Parliament can take and should take to support Indigenous peoples' work in revitalizing their legal orders. Repealing mandatory minimum sentences and expanding the availability of CSOs are necessary steps to address the mass incarceration of Indigenous, Black, and other racialized people. Our third recommendation is to repeal Section 4 of the CDSA and to decriminalize necessity trafficking, which is defined as the selling and sharing of a controlled substance for subsistence, to support personal drug use costs, and to provide a safe supply. In the interest of time, we will refer you to our written materials. And finally, in our brief, we provide a detailed list of recommendations respecting the diversion measures proposed under the CDSA. If simple possession and necessity trafficking continue to be criminalized, the approach taken in Bill C-5 must be strengthened in order to protect human rights and promote equitable outcomes. In particular, we are concerned about the reliance on police and prosecutorial discretion in the bill. Further, the bill should not require the identity of the individual to be included in police records of warnings or referrals. 
Importantly, people who have been convicted of simple possession prior to Bill C-5 coming into force should not be arbitrarily excluded from the mechanisms available for expungement of records of conviction. That was Nikki Baines, Policy Staff Counsel with the BC Civil Liberties Association. Now here's Caitlin Shane, Staff Lawyer with the Pivot Legal Society. My name is Caitlin Shane. I'm the Staff Lawyer of Drug Policy at Pivot Legal Society, and I'm joining you from Vancouver, BC, on the stolen lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. I've circulated a more detailed brief that explains Pivot's position in full, but for today, I'm going to focus on Bill C-5's proposed amendments to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, and specifically those under Part 1.1, Evidence-Based Diversion Measures. In short, Pivot is concerned that by proposing measures that lessen but don't fundamentally alter the criminalization of drug use, Bill C-5 is currently fated to maintain the status quo and in doing so to fail in its own stated purposes. And I'll unpack that a bit. So Bill C-5's principles correctly identify that substance use is not a criminal issue, but a health and social issue. It rightly finds that interventions should be founded on evidence-based practices that protect the human rights, health, and dignity of people who use drugs. It recognizes significantly, I think, that criminal sanctions for drug possession increase stigma and, quote, are not consistent with established public health evidence. But despite accurately identifying the principles and evidence in issue, Bill C-5 proceeds to propose solutions that don't follow those principles or evidence to their logical conclusion. If Bill C-5 wants in good faith to honor its principles, it should actually decriminalize drug possession and necessity trafficking. This is being called for desperately by people who use drugs, their families, numerous chief public health officers, over 180 civil society organizations across the country, the province of BC, various entities of the United Nations, it is time to listen to the experts and legislate accordingly. I'm primarily concerned that when it comes to people who are actually being criminalized for drug use, these diversion measures will just continue to cycle people through the criminal justice system. And I'll explain why. Bill C-5 retains police and prosecutorial discretion to lay drug possession charges. And it explicitly provides that if police fail to follow protocol, there are no consequences, either for the officer or the person who has been failed. We know that poor and racialized drug users are consistently disproportionately targeted for drug possession charges. If these provisions don't actively combat that reality, we cannot expect it to change. Bill C-5 requires that police collect information, including personal identification, for people that receive warnings or referrals, and that information is then made available to police in the courts. This provision alone mimics criminalization and is absolutely enough to keep drug use driven underground. The Supreme Court of Canada has recognized that even the most informal interactions between police and marginalized communities is experienced as detention. So provisions respecting extensive data collection must be removed in their entirety. Though the record suspension provisions are well-intentioned, 
they also won't protect most people who are criminalized for drug possession. Record suspensions are easily revoked, including where a person commits an indictable offense or they're considered not to be of good conduct. An indictable offense can be something as minor as breaching a, a probation condition that requires abstinence. So I would urge the Senate to consider a more effective approach to suspending and expunging records for drug possession offenses. Those are sort of my overarching concerns. And of course, my core recommendation with respect to the diversion measures is to decriminalize drug possession and necessity-based trafficking. Short of that, there are amendments that can be made. I've included those in my brief, but it is with the earnest caveat that this framework, this current iteration of Bill C-5, will not serve the bill's stated purposes and is not truly a public health or human rights approach to substance use. That was Caitlin Shane, staff lawyer with the Pivot Legal Society, testifying October 19th before the Canadian Senate's Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs on Bill C-5, an act to amend the Criminal Code and the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. The committee met again on October 20th to discuss Bill C-5. Among the witnesses they heard from that day was Sarah Nyman, legal counsel and assistant manager of legal services with the Native Women's Association of Canada. NWAC's head office is located on the traditional unceded territories of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. Miigwech for inviting NWAC to appear today. Canada's laws have told Indigenous women disparaging stories about themselves. And as Canada's national organization responsible for advancing Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit, trans, and gender-diverse people's equality rights, NWAC hopes today's submissions help shift the narrative. Honorable Senators, as you study Bill C-5, NWAC hopes you'll be alive to its possibilities to advance reconciliation. Throughout colonization, Canada imposed laws that have told Indigenous women they are not equal. The Indian Act told Indigenous women their identities were not as valuable as Indigenous men's when passing on lineage. Canada's laws told police that they could threaten and jail Indigenous mothers who tried to protect their children from residential school. Canada's laws told Indigenous women they were not good mothers and scooped their children up to be placed in non-Indigenous homes. Canada's laws told Indigenous children that they were not as worthy as other children when it underfunded Indigenous child and family services. Canada's laws told the families of Indigenous, missing, and murdered women and girls that their losses were not as important as other people's. Today, Canada is learning to do better and is committed to reconciling with Indigenous people. Canada's promise extends to the laws it enacts and its relationship to Indigenous women. Canada said it would address the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's 94 calls to action. Canada also said it is committed to responding to the final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, 231 Calls to Justice. Indigenous women are working hard to reclaim their power in places. Today's laws must value and treat Indigenous women with substantive, not formal, equality to make good on reconciliation's promises. Bill C-5 is an opportunity to apply reconciliation principles to criminal sentencing reform. Bill C-5 seeks to repeal some mandatory minimum sentences. Honorable Senators, you have heard from many witnesses who have described a failed get-tough-on-crime experiment that perpetuates great harm against Indigenous women. The Office of the Correctional Investigator tells us they now account for more than half 
to federally sentence women in prison. Bill C-5 addresses one way the law can shift this narrative. Instead of treating Indigenous women who commit crimes as bad guys, Bill C-5 empowers trial judges to meaningfully engage Gladue principles and recognize that most of the Indigenous women who appear before them are at first victims before committing offenses. As you study Bill C-5, the Supreme Court of Canada is preparing to issue its ruling on the Sharma case. This case addresses whether Section 742.1 mandatory minimums are constitutional. NWAC intervened in that case, both at the Ontario Court of Appeal and Supreme Court of Canada levels. And as we submitted in Sharma, repealing mandatory minimums promises to restore a more balanced approach to sentencing. Section 718.2e, or the Gladue Principles, advanced substantive equality for Indigenous women. So breathing life back into Gladue Principles at sentencing also aligns with Canada's promises to Indigenous people, contained within the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples the Domestic Act, and the International Human Rights Treaty. NWAC asks the Senate to be ambitious. We ask you to seek to repeal all mandatory minimum sentences, not just those addressed in Sharma and Bill C-5, because a piecemeal approach to repealing mandatory minimums dilutes their legal harm, but does not fix the situation. Alternately, NWAC supports amending Criminal Code Section 718.3, so judges can first consider alternatives to incarceration on the remaining mandatory minimum penalties. This is in alignment with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's call to Action 32. NWAC sees mandatory minimums as creating two distinct harms. For one, they prevent trial judges from using their discretion to craft meaningful sentences that reflect an Indigenous woman's full social context. This includes the criminal justice system's own role in perpetuating her suffering. Secondly, mandatory minimum penalties close the door on Indigenous community-based conditional sentences. This infringes Indigenous people's right to exercise their own customs, traditions, rules, and legal systems. In other words, sentences that engage Gladue principles make legal space for Indigenous communities to engage restorative healing practices. Excusez-moi, Madame uh, Neiman. I'm sorry, Ms. Neiman. Could you uh, uh, finish soon, please? In other words, many of the Indigenous women coming out of federal prisons today are not coming out whole, healed, or restored. The criminal justice system is failing them, and we ask you to do your part in remedying that harm. That was Sarah Nyman, legal counsel and assistant manager of legal services with the Native Women's Association of Canada. Now here's Pam Rick, executive director and general counsel with the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. I am grateful to appear before you today from Toronto or Takaranto which is within the lands protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant. LEAF is a national charitable organization that advocates for the substantive equality of all women, girls, trans, and non-binary people. We do this through litigation, law reform, and public legal education that is feminist and intersectional. We applaud the government for putting forward Bill C-5. We know mandatory minimums and restrictions on the availability of conditional sentences contribute to the mass incarceration of Black and Indigenous people. The amendments contained in Bill C-5 represent an important first step to combating systemic discrimination in Canada's criminal legal system. However, Bill C-5 does not go far enough. This is why LEAF collaborated with the Black Legal Action Centre and the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies 
to prepare a brief for this committee. In our brief, we urge you to adopt five recommendations. I won't read those to you, though I ask you to carefully consider them. I want to focus my opening remarks on two recommendations. First, we recommend the removal of all mandatory minimums from the criminal code. Evidence shows us that mandatory minimums do not deter crime. At the same time, though, they contribute to the significant incarceration and over-policing of marginalized communities, specifically Black and Indigenous communities. If this committee is not willing to go so far as to amend Bill C-5 to remove all mandatory minimums, or even just those that have been found unconstitutional, I urge you to at least grasp the low-hanging fruit. I urge you to adopt a recommendation to implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action number 32. As you've heard, this would allow trial judges, upon giving reasons, to depart from mandatory minimum sentences and restrictions on the use of conditional sentences. Call to Action 32 recognizes and responds to the reality that where mandatory minimums and restrictions on conditional sentences remain, injustice will inevitably result. Call to Action 32 enables judges to pass sentences proportionate to the circumstances of the offense and the degree of moral blameworthiness of the person before them. Professor Deborah Parks provides the example of an 18-year-old Indigenous teenager who kills her abusive drug dealer. This teenager could be convicted of second-degree murder and face a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole for at least 10 years. This would be so regardless of the constellation of Gladue factors that might be present in her life. That could include trauma related to the atrocity of residential schools or the 60s scoop, as well as other experiences of racism, childhood abuse, violence, or addiction. With the implementation of Call to Action 32, however, a judge would be able to meaningfully consider the systemic factors bringing this teenage woman before the court and the type of sentence that might be appropriate given her Indigenous heritage. Part of the context for Bill C-5 includes the fact, as you've heard, that Indigenous women now constitute over half of all women in federal prisons, despite making up less than 5% of the female population in Canada. The mass incarceration of Indigenous women is a national injustice, and we need more than incremental change to address it. At the same time, the proliferation of mandatory minimums has also not improved the situation of Indigenous women who experience nearly double the rate of violent victimization as Indigenous men, and close to triple that of non-Indigenous women. It's important to note that Call to Action 32 is not limited to Indigenous people, but is broadly worded to be applied to reduce all incarceration. This is particularly relevant for Black men, women, and gender-diverse people. Sentencing judges considering the impact of race and racism on an individual may reasonably conclude that the only fit sentence is one that departs from a mandatory minimum or restriction on a conditional sentence. It has been now over seven years since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released its 94 calls to action. The lack of progress on the 76 recommendations directed to the federal government is shameful, with independent sources finding that only seven to eight have been implemented as of this year. It's within this committee's power to force the issue to insist that Parliament not defer and delay the implementation of yet another of the calls to action. 
That was Pam Rick, Executive Director and General Counsel with the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, testifying before the Canadian Senate's Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs on Bill C-5, an act to amend the Criminal Code and the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Oh, before we go, one last thing. I refer to the top of the show to the land of Abiyala. I've used that term before, and people have asked, so I should explain. Roughly translated, it means land in full maturity, and it refers to the landmass of the American Hemisphere, north and south. And on that note, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Find this edition of Century along with an archive of past shows at the Drug Truth Network website, drugtruth.net. You'll find a link there to subscribe to the Century of Lies podcast. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Doug McVeigh. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy reform and the failed war on drugs. For now, this for is the Doug Drug McVeigh Truth Network, so this long. is Doug McVeigh asking so you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. Mm-hmm.